Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I learned yesterday, maybe it's been out for longer than that, but I came across this yesterday that after 53 years in business, Burlington Taxi is going to be shutting its doors. And I mean, that's that's a terrible news story about a long-standing business in this area for sure. Uh, we never want to see businesses that have been around and part of the community for that long stopping. But it also, I thought, raised a whole bunch of questions about the taxi industry because we know that the industry and the getting rides business, and you know, it's not just the taxi business, I guess, the, the getting rides, getting places business has been changing in recent years. Scott Wallace is president of Burlington Taxi. He joins us now. Scott, thanks for doing this tonight. Hi, Scott. How are you? Really appreciate you doing this. Thanks for coming on. Um, is after 53 years, is this simply the business not being there anymore for taxis or is there something else to this? No, it's actually kind of the opposite because we're actually quite busy. Uh, our phones are ringing. We've been as busy as we were almost pre-COVID. Uh, not, we're getting there anyways. The bigger problem we have is that just the lack of staffing, trying to find people to work, trying to find drivers. I mean, it's competitive out there. As you see driving around today, everybody's looking for, for, for staff. And our trouble has been since, you know, the community started coming back and stores started opening again and business started coming back. We started trying to rehire our drivers. Um, some of them just didn't want to come back for, you know, a number of reasons, whether it's COVID or, you know, they changed jobs, they found another job. Whatever the situation is, we went from, you know, 120 drivers just before COVID to down to probably 30 today. Wow. So, wow. Has, yeah. has it always been difficult, Scott, to find drivers or prior to COVID, was it usually pretty easy to fill spots? No, it's always, it's always been difficult. And, you know, it's never been easy, but we'll always be able to find drivers. The um, Nowadays, we just can't find any. So, you know, you're always trying to find new staff and staff changes, people move on and things like that. So it was always not easy, but we're always able to find them. Um, but today we can't find any. I mean, just, we just, you know, we lost so many people because we'd lay them off because of COVID and all different things like everyone else. Excuse me. But uh, then when we started trying to bring them back, there's just there's no one to bring back. They didn't want to come back and then try to find new people because there's so many jobs out there. It's just a competitive market in the workplace now. So that's the problem. It's not lack of business. There's still lots of it. Mm. All right. Walk me through this a bit because I, I, I have a general like 30,000 foot overview of the business, but I don't know the details of how it works. Um, taxis have licenses. Does that, does getting a license fall to you as the owner of the business or does it fall to the driver who pays for that license? Well, there's two licenses. There's like the license plate in the back or the taxi license, as they call it, which is a plate that the companies or even individuals in a number of cities, um, they, they lease from the city. So the cities all have the rights to the license. We just lease them off the city for the one that, the, like the plate that goes in the back of the car. Now the drivers have to have their own taxi license. They have to be, you know, criminal checks and they drive and, you know, uh, the driving checks and things like that. But the driver, in most cases, uh, the drivers put their own car on the road and they're independent operators and they'll lease a license from someone or get their own license from the city, their own taxi plate, I guess I should say. So is it expensive then for a driver, whether it's your company or any company, is it expensive then for a driver to just get in? It sounds like you're not showing up without any expenses and just starting and making money. You've got some costs to go into this before you start. Yeah, like the city of Burlington, between getting doctor's notes and criminal checks and, and the different things, defensive driving courses, and then the city license themselves, probably there's, you know, six, seven hundred dollars just to get on the road. 
um, you know, and which is quite expensive for someone to come in and start a new job and say, you got to fork out $600 before you can, you know, even start. So it, it, that makes it a little bit difficult for it, but that's still, that was something we suffered through before. And, you know, we got through, people were paying that. We even helped them pay it to get, to bring people on board. But, uh, the people now it's just, it's not about the, the licensing or the costs or anything like that. I really just, there's just not enough people. I mean, we could use 40 people tomorrow in our business if we were staying open. Mm-hmm. And when you talk to the people who, you, you know, when you reached out to the drivers who had been there before and had left or you'd gotten rid of because of COVID and then you went to find them again, what were the reasons that they said they weren't going to come back? Did they give an explanation of what had chased them away? Um, well, I would probably say 50% just didn't really give an explanation. They just said, no, they're not coming back. Uh, small percentage said, you know, they're still going to come back because of COVID. They never spoke COVID. Understandable. I mean, being a taxi cab, you're in a tight, uh, you know, in a tight tight with the passengers are very close although we have plastic shields in between them now but a lot of people are nervous about that but and a number of them just found new jobs mm. and, and again once you said there's so many of them out there we know that uh in your business in and the broader business uh there's been lots of changes over the last decade maybe maybe a little more than that um competitors uber lyft other rideshare programs how much has that affected your business the taxi business in general well, that, that affected us years ago. And it's, I mean, it still affects us. They took away a lot of our, you know, in most kind of industry, we would say they probably took 40% of your business, which is mostly night business, the bars and uh, late night stuff. So it, it hurt us quite a bit in the, in the early days. And it, it continued, you know, it continued. But we all adjusted to, you know, most of our business is day, day business. Now we do a lot of contract work. Um, we've got like just a bunch of regular customers, corporate work, things that Uber can't do because of insurance reasons and, and uh, licensing and things like that. So we do a lot of school work. So the industry kind of adjusted and started doing a lot of contract work, which stabilized us, uh, stabilized us all before COVID. So we were all doing well, doing fine. Everything is normal. We still struggle to get people sometimes, but not as bad as it is today. So it's not Uber and Lyft. They did their kind of damage a long time ago. And we've all just kind of, moved on and restructured and do, you know, a lot of contract work, but still do the general, pick up the general public. The, because you, because taxis have to have licenses, the city benefits, the, the city makes money, whether it's Burlington in your case or Hamilton, wherever, the city makes money from these licenses. So it, it would be my estimation, my guess that the city would want a taxi service in town or want multiple taxi service. They're losing money if you go out of business. Yeah. I mean, the city, I mean, they don't make any money from the licensing part of it. I mean, that's, that's, that's you know, that's probably a cost recovery for them. And, and the city wants taxi company. The city, certainly the city of Burlington or anybody did want this to happen. Um, and the you know, city, we're part of the public transportation system. Every city, any decent sized town will need a taxi, you know, a taxi company to get, you know, still get people around. Um, but you know, the, you know, the city of Burlington and the rest, like we all, this is kind of a last minute thing that happened to us and insurance, mostly for insurance reasons and not getting employees, but we had to make the decision last number of months because, you know, we just started losing money because mm-hmm. only because again, lack of employees, but you know, the, the city is, you know, they're not thrilled. They're not happy. Um, we're all not happy about it. I mean, it's the worst decision I've ever had to make, but uh, you know, cities just, they don't, it's not about the money for them. It's just making sure that people have safe transportation around their town. We have only a few seconds left here, but Look ahead for a bit, uh, 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road. Do you still see taxis as a viable business model? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
what we were trying to do when we were trying to uh, work with another company is they're going to be regional call centers. So the taxi industry, again, will be around because a lot of the contract work we do, a lot of special transportation that we do. But what will happen, I believe, is because of the call centers, the infrastructure is you know, so expensive, uh, there'll be regional call centers where there'll be a place in Hamilton has a call center that will dispatch two cars from Halt, all of Halton, maybe to Mississauga, or Toronto does, you know, you know, all of Toronto, Mississauga, you know, Brampton. So what has to happen is smaller companies like us who can't afford the infrastructure with so few drivers these days, we'll just still all move to, you know, call centers in Hamilton and just be dispatched because it's all automated now anyways. So just be dispatched from regional center. So, I see the taxi company going to be around for the next 30, 40 years. There's no reason they won't be. Scott Wallace, president of Burlington Taxi, which unfortunately, very sadly, is uh, is going to be no more after 53 years. Scott, really appreciate you taking some time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Ten years ago tonight, it's amazing that it's gone that fast. Ten years ago tonight, the game that became known as the best game ever was played at BC Place, McMaster versus Laval in the Vanier Cup. You surely know about it or watched it or heard about it or saw highlights or had someone tell you about it or something. McMaster won in overtime, school's only championship. It sounded a little bit like this. McMaster University, are you ready? This time, it's over. For the first time ever, Mac, you've won the Vanier Cup. Ten years ago, Steph Potasik was on the sideline that night. He was the head coach. He is the head coach. He joins us now. Steph, how are you today? How you doing, Scott? Uh, well, hey, I'm I'm great. I'm sure that uh, ten, I, I'm, you knew you knew this anniversary was coming up. You knew what today was even before we called you, right? <laughs> it, it it had occurred to me. It did. It did. When you, 10 years later, when you think about this and it really, you know, there have been a lot of games and there's been a lot of, you've won a lot of games and everything else, but this one really stands out for a lot of people. When you think about that night, when it comes to mind, what is the thing? What's the first thing? What is the moment that you think of when that game comes to mind? Oh boy, that, that's a tough one. Um, yeah, I I, uh, I have a thousand of them that all tie for first place because there's so many special people and and so many special things. It, uh, uh, unfortunately for your listeners, I could talk for like six, seven hours on this topic. Uh, and, uh, it's one of those things that in your lifetime, you don't remember a, a specific day very often. Uh, most people will have two or three that they'll remember a lot of details on. And, and that particular run and that particular day, I, I think there's a, a, a locker room of young men and, and coaches that, We'll remember it forever, and we get an extra day that's real special to us that we'll 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 never forget. Mm. How often have you watched either the highlights or watched the entire game since then? Uh, <laughs> uh it it's been a, a few years. Um, every once in a while, I think the last time my my youngest, who's in grade seven, um, I wanted to show him what what happened uh, when. Uh, just before he was born and, and, and give him a sense of it. It, uh, uh, he's a football crazy and he'd never seen it. And so it, it wow. was fun to have him experience it. And so that was the last time, but I'd be lying if I'm going to go much more than a couple years before I, uh, I sit down and enjoy that. Uh, cause that's a, that's a fun three hours for uh, coach Potasic. 
I was talking to yesterday to Tyler Carpina, who was your kicker at the time, who kicked the winning field goal at the end, and he said he he watched it last within the last year or so. He had some time during the pandemic, and even sitting watching it on TV, his stress level was going through the roof. Even though he knows the end and everything else, can you watch it and be relaxed and comfortable, or do you still get stress watching that game as it's going along? Yeah, it, it's uh, it's like your favorite movie that the you you react. Uh, pretty consistently at all the same parts, and that's why it's one of your favorite things to uh, get through every couple years. Uh, and no, it doesn't. Th- those emotions and and just how stressed you were in the actual moment, uh, it, it triggers some sort of weird response when you're watching it again, even decades later, uh, that uh, you relive some of it. And it's uh, it's one of your more proudest things you've ever accomplished. And and you. You want to make sure you got to pinch yourself that it actually did happen, and so there is some nerves about it, and it is uh, it is something you should do every couple of years. Mm. Did you? He said that he'd never had that kind of stress in his life at that moment. Now he was nineteen; he was a second-year player. Had you had any moment that was more stressful at that time than that fourth quarter going into that overtime? Yeah, I, I don't. It, it's. Uh, uh, it's different when you're stressed about wanting to accomplish something for yourself. Uh, but when you get in a room full of people that you care so much about and you want to accomplish something for all of them, it, it, that's kind of an amplifier and it's tough to recreate in anything else that you get into. And so uh, it, it is, it, it's pretty special that you're in a room that you care that much about everybody else and wanting them to get to a goal that you want to get to as well. And, and it's hard, it's hard in life to get to that. And, and certainly uh, family and, and, and there's other things that are, are more important than football, but, uh, it, it uh, it's unique. And, and that group, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll celebrate this 10 years and it'll be great to reconnect with all of them because, uh, you don't find yourself in that situation in this world very often. And it's pretty special when you do. Well, no. And, and you know, I went back today and I'm sure you've done this and looked at the names on that roster and, have you ever gone back and looked and went, that guy went pro and that guy went pro and that guy should have gone pro and that guy should have lasted longer in the pros or whatever else and and wondered how it was that you were able to recruit a class like that that all was around the same age and all came to their peak at the same moment? Have you ever wondered how that happened? I I mean, it's two words for me there. It's it's Frank Gustazi. And, and Frank is football Hamilton and... Uh, is, was the heart and soul of our program and recruiting. And so that one, no, it's not complicated. He he, he did a great job. Um, I, I do, when I look back on that year, think about some of the architects with Therese Quigley and Peter George and uh, putting a footprint down in that on that campus that football is a priority and that they don't want to just participate. And um, I, 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 I had a great uh environment to work in and was smart enough to surround myself with great people and uh the fact that we had those that many good players and they went on to do great things um isn't as overwhelming as you might think because there were so many talented uh uh, coaches and and that infrastructure and and it's it's one of those things that all came together and so uh, yeah Mm. when you look back at that it it just kind of makes sense that that obviously brought you lots of attention and your team lots of attention I also think that it, and maybe you agree or disagree, I think it changed expectations for every single team on campus. Every McMaster team, I think, had their expectations changed when you won that game. I, I, 
we have some competitive coaches and some great programs. And I, I, I'll, I'll take that. It's a huge compliment if it did, uh, because uh, there, there's, I love our, our high performance area is uh, all varsity athletes work out in the same spot. And so when my football guys are in there with the rugby girls, they, they're like, holy cow, don't cut them off in traffic. They work hard now. They'll kick our butts. And, and so we, we see that commitment and see, see that, that room. Maybe we showed that it is possible, uh, that it's not as abstract. And, and watching a, us go against a, a Laval team that should have been unde- unbeatable and, and, and doing what we did at least demonstrates that, hey, what we're doing at McMaster is, is special. Um, but I, I, I would be reluctant to take credit for the hard work of, of all those other varsity coaches. There are a lot of talented people in, in our athletic department. That game, um, and again, it was out in BC, so it was people watching from home, and I don't know how many people actually watched. I I think a lot of people have seen it in retrospect or heard about it or tuned in partway through because people told them you got to be tuning in or whatever else. But that game, of course, led to the next year when you played Laval again, 37,000 people at Rogers Centre. A couple years later, 24,000 people in Montreal when you're playing in Montreal and I really thought that around that time when all this was happening, that was going to be the time that the Vanier Cup became an easy sell. That every year it was going to be, now people are aware it's going to be easy to fill buildings. It hasn't always worked out that way since then. Why not? Why, has it, why is it still a challenge at times? It's an interesting one. Um, I, I, uh, I do think um, that Vancouver, uh, that first one, we, we had partnered with the CFL, and the, the Grey Cup was later that weekend at the same venue, and the tickets uh, were part of the, the Grey Cup uh, celebration. And so that, that partnership, um, I think it, needs, it needed to evolve and be tweaked and get better, uh, but we, we, we went our separate ways a couple years later, and, and it, it has had some challenges since. Uh, but that, that definitely was a big part of it. Um, and. It, it, it is, once you get inertia in the right direction, which is hard to get, uh, it's a great game and it's memorable. And then we get back both teams the second year and the largest sporting event in U-Sport history is the, the 212 and the 37,000. I was in Argo for years and it was uninspired coming out of the tunnel. Um, as I walked out of that tunnel for that game, the hair on the back of your neck is standing up because for the first time in a long time, you're looking at this stadium and it's full and, and, Laval had a fair a number of fans there, but there was a lot of maroon. And having respect for how big the Marauder Nation actually might be when they're rallied the right way, uh, it, it, a tremendous pride that the largest sporting event in, in U-Sport history, McMaster's there. And I don't think that's necessarily a coincidence. It had to be a big deal for the hair on the back of your neck to stand up. Anyone who's seen your head and your neck knows how, you know, how much work that would take to... to... <laughs> Uh, you, uh, he's, he doesn't have hair is the point for anyone who doesn't know what Steph looks like. That was my point. That was very clumsy. Um, are you wearing your championship ring today? Do you wear it for anniversaries? We, uh, we might have a little barbecue at Maddie Parasini's coming. And, uh, I, I think maybe I'll wear that. It, it's pretty big now. It, it, as I'm getting older, it forces me to kind of just walk in circles cause it weighs me down on the one side. But, uh, <laughs> um, I, I, uh, it was never about uh, the ring, although it's a great memento. Uh, it, it was those relationships and that, that, that group of young men to reach their full potential and, and have the end of that year. Uh, that 
whether we got a ring or not, I'm no one's ever going to forget that. That was a part of it, and it uh, it's it's so special. Uh, but yes, I'll, I'll I'll fly some bling this week for sure. Uh, that is Steph Potasek, head coach of the team that won the 2011 Vanier Cup. It's called the best game ever. And in fact, if you still have not seen this game and you've heard people talk about it, you go, what's this all about? Uh, go online, just type in best game ever McMaster or best game ever Vanier Cup. You'll find CSN did a documentary on it. Uh, there's other things you can go and, and look it up. It's um, If you're going to watch it, it's a good night to do it. It's a, it's, a, it's a fun watch. Steph, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for letting me relive it. It, uh, I appreciate it. Good to talk as always. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is a very strange story that's going on right now that um, a lot of people, scientists, researchers, doctors are struggling to figure out. And it goes like this. When COVID really got going, there were massive concerns that Africa was going to be devastated. The country doesn't have the same medical infrastructure we do. It doesn't have the same wealth. It doesn't have the same access to vaccines. Um, if you've ever been over to Africa, to some of the poorer countries on that continent, you'll know that asking people to quarantine at home is impossible. They they have to day-to-day. They have to live. That That's just not, for many, many people, that's just not a realistic, that's not a feasible thing. Yet, what we're learning and what is being so puzzling is that while much of the Western world is dealing with repeated COVID outbreaks and even now new waves and new types of the virus, Africa has largely, it seems, been spared. The World Health Organization says cases have been dropping since July. Last week, Zimbabwe, for example, reported just 33 cases of COVID and zero deaths. It seems completely contrary to what we would have expected. So what is going on? Dr. Chris Modi is a professor. He's the head of the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the Cummings School of Medicine at the University of Calgary. He joins us now. Dr. Modi, thank you for the time today. Scott. Uh, This, as I said a moment ago, this seems to fly in the face of everything we would have expected, doesn't it? Absolutely. When the pandemic started, I think that we were very worried about Africa for all the reasons that you stated. And um, an additional one that we could add to the list would be the difficulty in distributing vaccines mm. in a healthcare system like many countries have in Africa. So absolutely, we were we were very worried about that. And we've seen in the past, um, not that long ago, how many years ago was the Ebola virus a real a huge issue, less than a decade. I lose track of time, but it's within the last decade we saw Ebola cause huge problems in some places. Oh, there have been outbreaks of uh, Ebola uh, and the WHO continues to monitor that. Uh, there were outbreaks last year. Right, okay. Yeah, so it's it, it's not like somehow Africa is immune to this naturally. There's something going on. Um, and reading these stories, reports say that only 6% of Africans right now are vaccinated, which again, way below what we have over here. So is there a possibility that there is something else that is giving people over there in certain parts of that continent immunity, something in the diet, something in the environment, something else? Is there something that might explain this? Well, I I think when we look at Africa, um, you know, the answer is we don't know the reason why there is so few Ebola cases there. 
But I would, you know, when I think about it, I think about it in three different categories. There may be technical reasons why we're not identifying cases. There may be social reasons that protect people that live in Africa from getting infection. And then there may be biologic reasons, which is the heart of your question is, are there biological questions that are that are involved? And so um, in the technical category, um, as you described, the healthcare system isn't the same as ours. And so they may have more difficulty testing cases. And the definition of a case is that you test positive. And so if you're sick and you don't get tested, then uh, you're not a case. Um, and so that may be uh, what's going on. Um, the healthcare system you know, while we say that it's not, um, you, you know, it may not be comparable to uh, developed countries, the, the one of the things that they have done surprisingly well in Africa is managed Ebola, which is a, a deadly disease. And so they have the infrastructure to um, manage that disease and to contain it and provide restrictions which go way beyond um, you know, what we would do for uh, for COVID. And so maybe that's contributing to the small number of cases in Africa. In terms of social uh, aspects, um, people's lifestyle in Africa is different than ours. And it may be subtle differences in those lifestyle elements that protect them from uh, developing COVID-19. And then finally, um, the biological reason that you described. So there's a couple of uh, reasons. The first is that different genes that are involved in host defense and susceptibility to different infectious diseases vary in different populations. And it may be that there are gene uh, or variants of genes in individuals in Africa that actually protect them from getting the infection. And finally, it may be due to other exposures, and that gets to the heart of your question. And it has been shown that people that develop malaria frequently, those that have um, had frequent infections with malaria, are less likely to get COVID. So maybe there's something about the immune response when you've developed malaria a few times um, that actually changes your immune system in a way that protects you from COVID-19. Do we have any, and there's so many things you said, we're going to go back and back up and grab a few of those in a second here, but do we have any um, proper or credible knowledge of what percent of people on the African continent have been exposed to malaria? Is there any way to know that? Um, I don't know about, like, exposed it would be, um, you know, depending on the location of people in uh, in Africa, um, that would be a critical component. But in, you know, really endemic areas where, you know, malaria is common, exposure would be nearly 100%. Hmm. Uh, you know, it's interesting because when you take vaccines or any kind of medicine to treat an illness, oftentimes, or maybe usually, you can tell me if I'm, which way it is, have some part of that virus or that bacteria or something in it. So your body develops a, um, a, an ability to fight it off. It's familiar with it. We remember that a number of months ago, uh, Donald Trump was touting hydrochloroquine, which is a malaria drug. And I'm wondering if that's where the thought process, it wasn't just him. There were others that 
somehow there's if you if you can put something that fights malaria it introduces the a kind of malaria something it, it it seems odd that we're talking about malaria and that was the drug that people were talking about back then right so 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 let's first deal with the uh, hydroxychloroquine issue so you know that's been extensively studied and there's no evidence that that drug is actually efficacious. It was based on a theoretical rationale in terms of how the body deals with, how that drug works and how it works in different types of infectious diseases, um, and, but, uh, but no evidence that it's of, of any use in COVID-19. But that doesn't diminish, the. so, so that just means that a drug that's used for malaria isn't useful in COVID-19. It doesn't mean that when we do, you know, when we develop infections to something or get vaccinated to something, that immunity can be protect, specifically protective for that particular agent, but it can also cross-react into other areas. Hmm. And so, um, you know, immunity and vaccines is exceptionally complex. And so that, you know, we vaccinate um, for one particular agent, and then it turns out that there's protection for another agent. Uh, and so that's very important. Other things that, um, you know, that other agents, so for example, um, measles, the actual virus, the virus, if you get measles, the disease, that actually predisposes you to getting other infections because it has an adverse uh, effect on, uh, on immunity. So uh, whereas the vaccine is protective and doesn't do that. So there's, you know, there's lots of um, complexity to the whole issue of what some infections do in terms of protection or susceptibility to others. And, you know, it's and this is a um, an association. Nobody's actually really worked out the mechanism by which malaria um, induces protection for COVID-19. That would be one of the answers to one of the biological issues. You talk about t um, the social issues. I, I read something today that said that some have suggested less urbanization in parts of Africa could be a factor. Um, I, I was sort of surprised when I read that because my wife and I were over in Uganda a couple of years ago. Uh, downtown Kampala, and it's not the only city, obviously, in Africa, but downtown Kampala in the middle of the day is jammed. It's not like people in Africa are just spread out all over the place. The, the cities are, you, you can't argue that, that everyone's rural or that there's no packed places where you couldn't pass this along. It could be easily passed around if it was there. Yes, no, I mean, you're absolutely right. So there are places in Africa that are extremely densely populated and, you know, many countries in Africa that have more people than live in Canada, despite the fact that the countries are smaller. So absolutely. Um, and, you, you know, that's one of the reasons why we might be, might have been, or we were concerned that, uh, that mm -hmm. COVID-19 to Africa was going to be a real problem. Um, and, you know, so, um, you know, I'm not a sociologist, but, I, I, you know, if somebody were to say to me, do you think there are subtle differences the way people live in Africa compared to the way um, we live in Canada? And the answer oh, is, for sure. you know, I would have thought there was going to be something, right? So, mm. um, you know, and the question is, so, you know, is, is, is there something and is that making a contribution? 
And you mentioned technical, and this is a really interesting one because there's been suggestions that the numbers over there are much, much higher than reported. Some have said they think they may be seven times higher, but even over here, many people who have found they've had a positive test have not necessarily felt sick or their symptoms have been very mild. Um, over there in certain places, you probably would not go and search for a doctor if you just had no symptoms or mild symptoms which means you could have it. The numbers could be much higher there, just not being tested, not being reported, not being checked, or not have access to a doctor, period. Right. So so I, I think that's absolutely right, Scott. I, I think the issue is whether or not that's the explanation. And, you know, it's hard to imagine that the numbers that, that are being reported, you know, how many tenfold, hundredfold, thousandfold that we would have to amplify those to get to the numbers that, you know, w would be um, more expected. And so, you know, it's unlikely that that provides the only explanation. There mm -hmm. must be another, but perhaps it's contributing. Well, and when Ebola, as you've pointed out, when Ebola has broken out or malaria has been a huge problem, we've known about those. So it's not like there's no reporting of illness in Africa, in certain parts of Africa. There is. That, that that's absolutely true, but you know we need to add that uh, Ebola is uh, usually a pretty severe disease, sure. so it comes to medical attention. It's not, you, you know, there isn't really that you know large group of asymptomatic infections like there are in uh, COVID nineteen. There is a real irony in this story as well, and people who, uh, I think they probably heard it on the news during the break here, or if they've been listening to CHML during the day, the most vaccinated country in Africa is said to be South Africa. It, though, has the most deaths and the most cases on the continent, which seems, as I say, ironic. And now we're hearing about this new variant, B11529, that's what they're calling it for now. I'm sure they'll come up with a different name soon. Um, which is originating in South Africa. It seems the one place that they're doing the most to try and fight this is the one place that's having the most trouble. Right. Uh, you know, and so that's another conundrum. Uh, why would that, why would that be the case? Um, you know, South Africa does have a more advanced uh, healthcare system for sure um, than many other countries in, uh, in Africa, in the continent. And so, you know, it is that, you know, is that part of the explanation why they're having a lot of cases? But you're you're right. I mean, South Africa is much more similar to, um, you know, to uh, levels that we're familiar with. Is there a thing, uh, and you've touched on exposure. We, we had some time ago on the show, we were talking about something totally different. We're talking about allergies and why so many kids these days seem to have allergies. And one of the suggestions was, well, we, because of how clean we are and how often we bathe and how many showers we take and all the products we use, we don't let ourselves be exposed to some germs. And that can then, that the explanation was that can lead potentially to allergies. Is exposure, besides to malaria, could there be exposure to other things that in certain countries that are not as advanced or not where you don't have as many people living like we do here, that the exposure that they've had to certain things could theoretically be protecting them? Well, absolutely. And, you know, the the issue that you're talking about in terms of allergies, we call that the hygiene hypothesis. And it, it's a hypothesis that's been around for a long while. Um, I might put a plug in for a, for a colleague that wrote a book called Let Them Eat Dirt. <laughs> and in Let Them Eat Dirt, um, you know, I think we, we can imagine what's in that book. I mean, it really talks about 
how young children are colonized by bacteria and all kinds of different uh, microbes. Um, you know, it, it, it's said that we have more microbes in and on our body than we actually have cells that are our own. Um, and so, um, and there's no question that people's microbiome in Africa is going to be different than people that are in North America. The diet's very different. Exposure to microbes is very different. And it's possible that that is one of the explanations for uh, why people in Africa are, 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 uh, seem to be more protected. I am not going to argue against vaccines here. Uh, I have been vaccinated. I'm sure most people listening have. I'm, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but I've got to believe that when people see this, though, see these stories that say the places in the world that have the most vaccinations seem to be having trouble and the place in the world that have the least vaccinations are doing okay. Uh, this is going to raise some questions. There are going to be some doubters who are going to point to this and say, what does that mean? I mean, it, it, this is no, this is kind of the perfect fodder for those who would be doubtful. Yeah, sure. So uh, I think the way the way I think about that, Scott, is um, there may be populations around the world that are protected. There's no question in my mind that North American populations, South American populations, European populations are not protected naturally. And so um, that's why we have the magnitude of disease that we have here. Um, we were all very hopeful that vaccines would be the, the, the answer. If people got vaccinated, then we would not have any problems. Um, the COVID would go away. Uh, that was basically what people considered. And there's no question in my mind that if we could improve on the vaccination rate, we'd be better than we are now. So if we could get the vaccination rate to 90% of Canadians, not just eligible Canadians, um, of course, there's now a new population of eligible Canadians, but if we could get the vaccination rate up that high, we would be much better off. But there's information coming from uh, Europe now, and I'm sure that uh, you know people are aware of the fifth wave that it's occurring in Austria, where they've locked everything down, Germany, France, um, uh, and have had a resurgence in cases. And we think that that resurgence in cases has come from lifting restrictions. And so while the vaccines provide a tremendous level of protection, it's the most recent information is looking like they're not going to do it on their own. Um, certainly not at a rate of vaccination that is currently present in Europe, which is higher than ours and probably around 80% or so. So, you know, the, the issue there is, um, you know, how are we going to deal with COVID-19 moving forward? And it may be that we're not going to be able to completely lift all restrictions. There may be critical restrictions that we're going to have to maintain so that we don't, don't get another, uh, another wave. It's a fascinating topic. And as I say, it's, uh, it's turning some scientists' heads inside out. But uh, boy, it's um, one of the oddities of this whole thing, what is happening in Africa right now. Dr. Chris Modi from University of Calgary, really appreciate the time today. Thank you so much for doing this. Happy to do it, Scott. 
The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.